welcome. We're glad you're here and glad Micah can be with us to bring us the word uh, this afternoon. We're also very glad that Kelsey, his wife, made it and Lorelei fast asleep in the front pew. And we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> Hopefully it will. She's cute as a bug. You should see what I'm seeing. Oh, my eyes are open. <laughs> as we come to the worship and praise and um, teaching of God and His Word, let us open with a word of prayer, shall we? Please bow with me. Father, we thank You for Your mercies in this hour to come before You in Jesus' name. And what a heavy responsibility to pray in his name to say the things that he would say, to desire the things of you that he would desire. And most uh, pressing of all would be to have the faith uh, that he has. So we pray that we might uh, partake in the measure that we are able of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to you uh, this afternoon, forgive our sins. We pray, strengthen us from above, both to teach and to uh, receive the word and to offer the fruit of our lips. Praise to your name as we uh, meet together. We thank you for uh, brethren of like precious faith that uh, we might uh, be uh, edified uh, by the mutual faith of one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn to hymn number 219 in the Trinity. 219 in the Trinity. And we will stand as we sing this.
seated. <clears throat> Turn, if you will, to in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. As we have noted, chapters 1 through 9 are something, in my opinion anyway, of a heart preparation for the Proverbs proper, which in chapter 10 begins with the phrase, opens with the Proverbs of Solomon. This is Solomon uh, writing to us here in chapter 6. And so we notice uh, in keeping with that theme of heart preparation, we see in verse 14 a very stark example of the wicked man's heart. It is Old King James froward. In English, you can be either be going towards something or from something. And in the old days, they had a word called fromward, and that got shortened to froward. So just a little King James lesson for you there. But the word is perversity or perverseness and deceit uh, that is in his heart. And interesting, uh, this word that is translated uh, probably in your version is perversity, I think. Nine of the ten instances in the whole Bible are found in the book of Proverbs and the other instances in one of the Psalms. Verse 18, we will see that one of the six things, yes, there are seven, that God hates is a perverse heart, wicked imaginations, devices, thoughts, plan there. So the emphasis here in the Old Testament even is your heart. Verse 21, the son, once again, uh, the beseeching father, beseeching the son to bind the word uh, to his heart. And the whole section there, of cha- uh, verse 20 to 23, uh, just an exhortation and to all of us to master the contents of this book. You have no other desire in life, desire that, to master the contents of this book. Heaven and earth will pass away. Whatever you're working toward, you're going to have to turn it in uh, at the end, but my words will never pass away. Verse 25, again, the heart. He exhorts his son Regarding the forbidden, the adulterous, the uh, whorish woman, to not lust after her beauty in your heart. You know, I, I always thought that this teaching of Christ, that if you look at a woman to lust after her, was something new that he had uh, brought to the Word of God, but it's not. It's right here uh, in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. Heart adultery. Is right there. And so just a brief outline, one through five, quite a few topics are being covered in this chapter. He, he exhorts his son regarding his assets, to be wise with them, not to uh, commit himself uh, to be a co-signer of debt. And if he has, it sounds like he has, he says, your only priority is to get yourself out of that. <laughs> Don't. Spare yourself any pains uh, to get out of that. And there's a lot that would need to be said qualification-wise for that. Uh, There are times when it is perfectly legitimate to co-sign a debt. Verses 6 through 11, we go to the ants' school, the school of the ants. 
And it's the school of diligent labor. It's the school of unsupervised labor. It's the employer's dream to have employees that don't need constant uh, supervision. And we see how poverty works. The sluggard, he loves sleep. My daughter has a quote. I don't know where she got it. Uh, Allison, the youngest. Sleep begets sleep. And that's absolutely true. Um, The more you get, the more you want. And so the way that uh, sluggardliness works and the way it brings poverty, he he speaks of it, your poverty is going to come. That's the result of sluggardliness. Your poverty is going to come. First, it's like a traveler. Let's say you have uh, an iPhone and he's given you access to his location. You say, oh, He's, he's miles away. He's not going to be here for a long time. He's a traveler. So you go back to sleep, and the next thing that happens on your couch, you hear one thunderous boom on your front door. The door is down off its hinges, and in comes the armed man, the strong man, and takes everything you have, and that's how it happens. You think, a little more sleep, a little more slumber, and then boom, poverty comes. Then, uh, verse 20 uh, through 23, or excuse me, 12 to 15, the wicked man is described for us. And then in the, let's see, I need to get my King James out. Pardon me for a second. It says in verse 14 that there's frowardness, perversity in his heart. He devises mischief continually. He sows discord. And then we come immediately on that to the six things that God hates. Yes, there are seven. And something I I had never heard before, uh, but I learned this week. uh, Joellen loaned me a book by uh, Ray Ortland. And he gives a comment. He says, The formula of 6 plus 1 is a literary device that they used and that the important item in the list is the last item in the list. That's the one um, being focused on. And so as you go down there in verses 16 through 19, you see that the last item in this list is he that sows discord among brethren. The same thing that he had just talked about, the, the perverse... Uh, man's heart. So I think all these verses uh, 12 through 19 um, could and maybe should um, go together because if you would look, um, Mike, I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time here. Proverbs 26, 24 to 26. I think this is important to show that I think these verses uh, belong together. He who hates dissembles with his lips, or he's hypocritical with his lips, lays up deceit when he speaks fair. Do not believe him, for there are, what, seven abominations in his heart. There's our seven things that uh, God hates. They're all in his heart. And so I think they do belong uh, together. I think the, the best part of this chapter to me is those verses in 20. Through 23, once again, the father beseeching the son. Son, 
Keep your father's commandment. Do not forsake the law of your mother. And the focus in the father's mind, because fathers know how men are. And so he says, I want to keep you from the evil woman. Verse 24, from the flattery of the tongue of the foreign woman, the adulteress, the whore. And so... Uh, Once again, as we've pointed out, there are many exhortations of the Father to the Son regarding the sin of lust. And we're going to have it again in this chapter. Just to give a little uh, reminder, I know you know this, but whenever you hear the law, we need to be careful to remember that we are in our flesh are not able to keep law. We need the Holy Spirit's help. These things are all heart sins, and we need a new heart. And having been given a new heart, we need to guard that heart. We need to keep that heart, and that's what he's exhorting his son to be. But you can get in trouble, just law, law, law. You you can forget that what the law is doing is it's stirring up your natural forwardness, your perversity, And uh, sin revives and I die, Paul says. The law stirs up, it even strengthens sin, Romans 7, 9. And the Proverbs are giving us good advice in ourselves. We cannot keep it. We must keep it. We must do the things that God is telling us here. But only through the Spirit can we do that, Romans 8, 13. You, through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body. Yes, it's you doing it, but it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I've taken a little too long. So let's go through and read uh, chapter 6. Micah's struggling with his voice, so maybe uh, (laughs) I'll give you a little break. I'm going to read it from the New International Version. which I found quite satisfying in uh, Psalms and Proverbs, actually. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said and snared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go to the point of exhaustion. And give your neighbor no rest, allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eye, to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little slumber? A little folding of the hands to rest? And poverty will come on you like a thief, in this version, the old King James traveler, and scarcity like an armed man. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, 
He always stirs up conflict, therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things Yahweh hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that rises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community, sows discord among the brethren. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and and instruction are the way of life. To life. Keeping you from your neighbor's life. From the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Or let her captivate you with her eyes. Just a side note. uh, Ladies, what the man is interested in is your beauty. Not you. The lusting man, that is. It's uh, their eyes that take them. And as Amnon learned, it was just her beauty and her eyes that he wanted. Um, Verse 26, For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Alternate reading is, uh, through a prostitute you are brought to a piece of bread. You're brought to poverty. Your version may read something along those lines. Can a man scoop, verse 27, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet, if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. The thief has no money. That's better than being the adulterer who has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. Uh, Before Micah then comes to minister the word of God to us from Psalm 2. Let us turn to him too uh, in the Trinity. God my King, thy might confessing. Hymn number 2.
come. Pastor Mike, come. Good afternoon. I'd like to apologize in advance for the way my voice sounds today. Um, my daughter just became old enough to start going to daycare, and with her entrance into daycare, has brought home all sorts of bacteria and viruses into the house. So that's sort of what I'm dealing with today. But uh, God will be gracious to us, and he'll uh, carry us through and give us grace to, to both preach and to hear his word. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. <clears throat> thank you for that your mercies are new every morning in Christ. We thank you that today we come together on the first day, the Lord's Day, to memorialize and to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended on high, and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, <clears throat> where he rules all nations as King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask that you bless our time together. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The text for this morning is going to be uh, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm number 2. <clears throat> and I think it's fitting that we, we should come to this psalm together today because of its witness to one obvious reality and then one rather hidden reality that is manifest only to those who have bowed the knee to Christ. And I think that the obvious reality in this psalm is captured in the first stanza. Let's read the first stanza of the psalm together. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we'll, we'll read the rest of the psalm too. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <clears throat> I started out by noting one obvious reality, and the obvious reality in this psalm is that the nations are raging against the king of kings. The nations are gathered together in a council, plotting the overthrow of the rule of God in the world. But... The hidden reality that I think is really, really beautiful, and it's hidden behind the fact that David is saying these things out of his historical context as a type of the Messiah or Christ to come. The hidden reality 
is that just as David was reigning as God's vice-regent on the throne in Israel, so this psalm looks forward to a day when Christ would reign at God's right hand. This is a psalm about not only the disobedience and the rebellion of this council of the nations, this is also a psalm about the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ. The fact that when Jesus ascended on high, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means an iota of authority on this earth belongs to anyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. But a little bit in the way of the structure and background of this, as I said before, this psalm is divided into four stanzas. And within these four stanzas, we have three points of view. And it's likely that David composed this psalm as a song to be sung at his coronation, his coronation as the king of Israel. <clears throat> In 2 Samuel 7, God covenants with David to defeat Israel, Israel's enemies through him, expand the promised land, give them rest on all sides, and give David an eternal throne. And the fact that God promises him an eternal throne should key us into the fact that he's promising more than just something to David in history. He's promising more than just something to that nation of Israel. And in this coronation, we have a picture of the more that God was promising to David. God promises David a throne that will never end. And in this psalm, what David says about his own coronation, because David is a type or a prefiguring of Christ, what David says about his own coronation as the king of Israel reaches forward and takes hold of the realities in Christ in the future that would happen at Jesus' ascension. It takes, it takes hold of those realities and speaks of the one to come, even as David is talking about himself. <clears throat> So, this psalm is a coronation psalm about David, but it is also much more than a coronation psalm about the reign of David. It's a song about the coronation of not only the king of Israel, but the king of kings himself. But first, let's look at the first stanza. The first stanza of this psalm is the conspiracy of the nations, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This touches the deepest experience of God's people in the world. We, we can see this going on all around us in our world, can't we? Is this, is this world a world that wants to be in subjection to God? Or is this world replaying over and over and over again in almost like a cycle what we see exactly in this first stanza of this song? Or take events that have just happened to us recently. What happened the second people thought they were going to lose their right to murder babies in the womb? Riots in the streets because they were so bent on the murder of their own young. People assembling to protest and riot, even people of the highest echelons of our, na of our nation's leadership were joining them. And this is exactly what this psalm talks about. This psalm isn't just talking about people like you and me in our 
sort of outside of Christ our daily rebellion against the Lord. This psalm is something much more malicious than that. The rebellion has reached us the highest echelons of the leadership of the nations of the world. This is a conspiracy amongst all nations to throw off the chains of God's rule over them. But there's also a deep irony in this passage, too. Because, and it goes back, excuse me, and the irony of this passage goes back to the fact that this is a coronation psalm. What should be happening as the king is ascending to his throne? As the king of the nations is ascending to his throne, there should be massive celebration, right? This should be an occasion of joy and laughter. But instead, and, and it should be an occasion of bowing to this new, newly crowned king. But instead, what do you see? The nations rage. They plot in vain. They set themselves. They take counsel together. Instead of bowing to the coronation of this new king, they immediately try to figure out how to overthrow his rule. But also notice the symmetry of this psalm with Psalm 1. Take a, look, take a look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. These two, these two psalms fit hand in glove with one another. Psalm 1 is a picture of what it means to live a blessed life in obedience and love to God. Where Psalm 1 references the counsel of the wicked, Psalm 2 expands the idea of that counsel and shows it to us as if it, as it comes to its full, final f- fruition. Psalm 1 shows us that true blessing comes from being in, in subject uh, being subject to God's word. Psalm 2 shows us that the whole earth writhes in anguish trying to get the cords of subjection off. Take a look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 1, verse 3. The person who's in subjection to God there is said, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. This is a picture of blessing and prosperity. But instead of the blessing, the blessing of the Lord that comes from being subject to him, this council of the nation says, let us burst those bonds apart and cast away those cords from us. But then, between the first and the second psalm, we, we see sort of a change in perspective. Not only do we see a change in perspective, but we see the speaker change. It goes from the psalmist speaking about the rebellion of all the rest of the nations to God's response. And God's response in the psalm should be absolutely haunting. What's God's response? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is actually referenced in Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 23 with me. 
Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. This is when uh, the believers are taken before the council. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And together, and uh, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue speaking your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. Jesus. So, what does Peter say? Peter says that this psalm was fulfilled when they killed Christ 2,000 years ago. Peter's saying that they had the king in their presence and they nailed him to a cross. Now, this is a, this psalm is a, once again, a psalm that I think we see the pattern of throughout all the ages. But this is the pinnacle. This is the apex of the fulfillment of this psalm. This council's rebellion has reached its pinnacle when the God-man walked on earth, performed signs and wonders, testifying to his deity, taught the masses from his own lips, and they still nailed him to a cross. But also notice what, uh, what Peter says here in uh, verse 28. They gathered together to do whatever your plan and your hand had predestined to take place. What's another aspect of irony to this psalm is that these nations, this council of the nations, is trying so desperately to throw off the bands of their subjection to God, but they're already doing what his hand had planned and predestined to take place. Peter says that. He says that outright. And once again, it reaches its pinnacle in the crucifixion of Jesus, this ultimate effort to kill God. They just play into his hands. And the the irony of it is that in verses 1 through 6, or the irony of verses 1 through 6 is found in the fact that Christ accomplishes the work of redemption and ascends to the throne through the means of all of those other earthly powers trying to break God's authority and establish their thrones. So Christ's deepest humiliation is the means of his greatest victory. The rebellion of those nations that hate God leads to the coronation of God's Son. What it, uh, this reminds me of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, behold, one coming like a son of man. He was coming up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations should serve him. Why is he being presented before him? He's being presented before him because he is the one who has just accomplished everything that God required for the salvation of sinners and for the redemption of the world. He's the one who had just accomplished the terms of that eternal agreement between father and son by which the father says, I'm going to give you 
the entire world. But God uses the rebellion of these wicked nations to accomplish their own defeat in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ where he's crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it also should give us great comfort because this isn't just something that happened in time. Like I just said a couple seconds ago, there are eternal origins to Christ's victory. Back to Psalm chapter 2. The eternal origins of Christ's victory, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's another change in voice here now. It's not just David speaking anymore, and it's not exactly the voice speaking from the second stanza either. This is the voice of God's anointed This is the voice of God's Christ, the one who has actually taken the throne. And here, so here we're given uh, the privilege of, of eavesdropping on a divine conversation between father and son. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the father is speaking to the son and the son is asking the father and there's this eternal agreement between father and son by which the son will inherit all things through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, through him accomplishing his father's will. But how do we know that this conversation is happening in eternity past? Well, When did God's purpose to give all things to his son begin? Ephesians chapter 1 talks about our predestination in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is part and parcel of this. The father saying to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The the glorious reality of, of this passage is that we are part of that heritage and that possession now. Jesus has taken possession of you through purchasing you on the cross, becoming a substitute for your sins, dying, being buried, and being raised to life on the third day. So the fact that there's a people that are given to the Son from before the foundation of the world, and the fact that God says, this day I have begotten you, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, we see that this conversation is not happening in time, but before time. This is an eternal agreement. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption. The agreement between Father and Son to redeem a people, the elect for themselves and to give all things to Jesus. It should give us great comfort that Jesus, our King, inherits the whole world and that it can't be any other way because it was supposed to be like this from before the foundation of the world. And lastly, the last stanza. Notice the psalmist's evangelism. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist's appeal to the the kings of the nations who are in rebellion is the same as, in many ways, as the psalmist's appeal to us today. It says, Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. To kiss the Son means to do homage to Him. To kiss the Son means to bow down to Him and recognize that He is the Lord of all creation. To recognize that He is God's King that He has set on His throne. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And that last statement is amazing because the first song starts out by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he's talking about God's blessing on obedience in the first psalm. But in the second psalm, God talks to the wicked and says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the picture becomes one of the fact that we are disobedient and we, but we take refuge in the one that God has anointed as his king. So that's really this, the appeal of the psalmist to all nations is really the same as my appeal to you right now. Do you know him? Have you kissed the sun or done homage to the sun or bowed your knee to the sun? Have you taken refuge in him? Because the nations are already his heritage. We're not waiting for this psalm to be fulfilled in the future. This is the case right now. Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is ascended on high. And he's enthroned at the right hand of the Father on David's throne over all nations. And one day, that will be made incredibly clear when he returns to judge the living and the dead. So, have you taken refuge in him? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Have you trusted Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the picture of Jesus that Psalm 2 gives us. I pray that everyone here would take refuge in him today. I pray that the words of this psalm would sink down into our hearts in that we would seek to obey him more because of its words. pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and empower us to love your son more as we go about our week this week. We thank you. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor, let's sing that psalm, Psalm 2, with hymn number 227 in the Trinity, 227. Shall we stand as we sing?